When you are of a class that represents no more than 1% of the population in the advanced industrialized nations, when you own so much of not only the nation you are resident in, or at least nominally resident in, but so much and so many assets all over the world, and the system you are governing slides into crises, you are faced with an urgent question of state management, which is how do you, as a member of a class that is only ever a tiny minority, retain control over a society in which the overwhelming majority do not benefit from your rule and in fact are made poorer by its continuance? This is a question facing the ruling classes of the imperialist nations, and it is a question which they have had to answer many times, certainly over the last 15 years since the great banking crisis and subsequent recession of 2008 to 2010. Now we are faced with the renewal of those problems and them coming back with a vengeance, because of course they were never really solved. The question of how the ruling class manages the societies they rule over returns to us with the utmost importance in terms of it needing an answer. Because as communists, we must understand how the ruling class can continue to maintain a situation whereby they, being only around about 1% of the population, maintain their hold over societies which are becoming poorer, where the life chances of the majority of the population are becoming more and more diminished. And it is a question which, to be blunt, many so-called Marxists in the imperialist nations have failed to answer because they have failed to consider the class structure, state structure, and the methods of rule of the ruling class seriously. So today, what we'll be doing on this particular episode of the Red Star Radio podcast brought to you by the Marx, Engels, Lenin Institute is looking at how the ruling class maintains their rule, specifically one particular tactic that they use and have used repeatedly over the last 30 years, in reality much longer than that, to maintain their rule. And that is the usage of what I'm going to call commodified rebellion. And let's start off by defining the term. Commodified rebellion, what do I mean by this term? What I mean is that the system, the capitalist system, specifically in the imperialist nations, though certain of these techniques will be used by ruling classes in the non-imperialist countries, but given that Britain, the United States, and the other imperialist nations are still the leading power in the world and are still the most dangerous reactionary force in the world, it is worth paying particular attention to the methods by which the ruling classes of these countries maintain their hold over their own countries and through them, of course, their hold over the other countries of the world that are subject to imperialist exploitation. Now, Commodified rebellion, I'm using that term because what I'm going to be arguing throughout the course of the next hour or so is that capitalism in its modern form needs various different forms of rebellious and nearly revolutionary energy to maintain its political structure. And this is the reason why you will see politicians and this happens across certainly the Anglo-sphere countries and increasingly the European nations as well, trying to appeal to radical and revolutionary sentiments in order to revitalize the political and ideological systems of control over which capitalism rules and through which they exercise their control. 
And a commodified rebellion is a rebellion that is, on the surface of it, it is presented, certainly, as something which is a dire threat to the so-called status quo, but in actual fact is a mere reinforcement of that status quo. And there's plenty of examples of this. If we think of the modern-day trend towards what is commonly called identity politics, that is certainly a very commodified rebellion, and one that has been used to strengthen the state structures and methods of ideological control that the ruling class uses to maintain its power. Certainly in Britain, that is true. In the United States, that is true. In Canada, Australia, and the other Anglosphere countries, this is perhaps where that is the most developed. There's other forms of it as well, though. For instance, after 2008, there was a whole movement set up that was running around in the streets, occupying various corporates, offices and shops, calling for these companies to, quote, pay their fair share of taxes. This was called UK Uncut. And that, if you remember it, is a perfect example of a commodified rebellion because it's a rebellion of which a part of the ruling class has lent their, if not approval to, then at least their tacit support to. And it promotes various different figures who are now very familiar in the left media ecosystem, such as Mr. Aaron Bastani and various other clowns that hang around Navarra Media. Another example would be so-called climate change. And you've heard my opinions on this before, and I will be doing programs on the science of this in the future, or the science of the fraud that is the climate change narrative. But climate change so-called activism is a perfect example of a commodified rebellion, because it's not only something which the ruling class or a big section of it has decided that they can make profit out of investing in, it also serves as a ideological battering ram to push the consensus towards lowered living standards for the overwhelming majority of the working class in the imperialist nation, which is, of course, something which isn't necessitated by so-called climate change. It is necessitated by the decaying capitalist system. And if you can tell the working class that it's either diminished chances for you and your offspring or the end of the world, then, well, it seems a lot better than just saying, well, you've got to take continued pay cuts and declining standards of living to preserve profits. Well, that's not a very appealing message. That doesn't build consensus for capitalist rule. That only makes people angry and likely to rebel. But if you can tell them that this is all about saving the world, well, not only can you then have a better message to take out there, but you can mobilize parts of the labor aristocracy and the petty bourgeoisie, and you can gather the intelligentsia around you and proclaim that you, the ruling class, are leading the way in saving the world. And you can even employ activists or actresses, such as Greta Thunberg and various others, to make pseudo-radical statements, to lead protests which appear to be against the regime, but in our in actual fact wholly controlled by the ruling class, their state structures, their academic institutions, their entertainment industry, which of course is dedicated towards replicating bourgeois ideology. So rebellions like that are of course wholly under the control of the ruling class, wholly commodified in the form of there being something which is not only there to recreate support for bourgeois rule, but also something which people can literally buy into. 
You can buy into it by via buying an electric car, investing in various different projects around so-called alternative energy sources, getting solar panels stuck on your home, buying a heat pump, all these areas of profit that are identified by the advocates of the climate change narrative, which of course enables you to then literally buy into this so-called rebellion. So let's start then at the beginning, which is to understand our term more correctly. So this tactic, which the ruling class have been using very effectively since World War II, where does it come from in terms of what is the, the need within capitalism that triggers this? And that is, of course, the fact that the root here is, of course, the economic base. And the economic base, as every Marxist should understand, though perhaps many do not, is, of course, subject to the contradictions of the capitalist system. And it takes itself to a point where there is too much of everything. There is too many commodities. There are too many means of production. There is too much food at a time of starvation. There is too much capital. And to go back to the old phrase of Andrew Mellon, this must all be destroyed. This must all be liquidated in order that then capital can start the process of growth all over again. And this is, of course, one of the big contradictions of capital. And this is what uh, Joseph Schumpeter, the liberal anti-communist economist, but a man who had a number of interesting insights, he termed this creative destruction. So to, by destroying all this surplus capital, you revive the system via this act of creative destruction. And this, of course, requires not just the fact that the, all this capital has to be creatively destroyed, to borrow Schumpeter's term again, but you also then need to have a political system, an ideological system in place, which can then not only justify this, but actively mobilize people around supporting these acts of creative destruction. Now, will many of these people know that that's what they're engaged in? No, they will not. That is never how it will be sold, other than perhaps in some of the very, very darkest corners of the offices in which the strategists of capital do meet. Many of the politicians who will be advocating for this kind of thing don't understand what it is either. It's just a paper that's handed to them from a think tank that they take their strategy from. So when you have the need for creative destruction, what does that require? If that's the requirement of the economic base, how does that reflect inside the political superstructure? And remember, when Marxists talk about, or when certain kinds of Marxists, Marxist-Leninists really, of which I count myself as one, talk about base and superstructure, what we mean is, of course, that life is derived from the economic base. All life comes from, of course, and is sustained by how we produce the essentials of life and everything else that makes up what comes to be known as the economy, the economic base. That then produces, of course, the political superstructure. And within that superstructure, of course, not only sits politics, but also culture, entertainment, and all the other methods by which the bourgeoisie carries out its rule and propagates its ideology. This, of course, then, if you imagine this in the form of arrows, an arrow comes upwards from the economic base to the political and ideological superstructure, but then that superstructure then relates back down to the economic base again. 
The base creates the superstructure, but then the superstructure reflects back into the base again. Now, this is important to understand when discussing what we're calling commodified rebellions, because the creative destruction that is required by the capitalist system in crisis, and as I've covered on many previous programs, the capitalist system in the imperialist nations has been in a almost continual crisis since the middle 1960s, interspersed by periods of growth whereby either through direct attacks on the domestic working class or increased exploitation of countries subject to the aggressive expansion of imperialism, they have managed to revive their systems for a little while via the super profits that can be obtained by direct looting of these countries. But it doesn't mask the long-term decline in the rate of profit. It doesn't mask the long-term decline in the vitality of capitalism in the imperialist nations. So these acts of creative destruction have been required more and more over the last 60 years. And as a consequence of that, they've needed to continually adjust the ideological superstructure in order to create political movements to propagate bourgeois ideology that can justify continual assaults on the working class, but also more and more aggressive acts of imperialism overseas. And that is what is required. So let's go back to our imagined drawing here of the base and the superstructure. The base needs to continually creatively destroy and that needs to be done domestically and internationally for the imperialist. Therefore, what need does that then generate to go into the superstructure? How does the superstructure need to be changed? It needs to be changed in order to mobilize enough of the petty bourgeoisie and layers of the working class in order to justify the actions that are required by the base. So, that can be done in a various different kinds of ways. It's not just going to be out-and-out out justification of wholesale assaults on the working class. That would be something akin to fascism, which we are on the way towards in some ways, in many ways, in fact, but we are, of course, not there yet. So, all these crises have necessitated a change in what Gramsci terms the earthworks, the defences of the bourgeoisie, the ideology of the bourgeoisie, which is designed for the purposes of not only legitimating their rule, but making sure that the divisions within the working class are not only maintained, but continually expanded. Because as I opened the program by saying, the one thing you absolutely cannot afford if you are the capitalist class is for the working class to overcome its divisions and unite against you. So you must be in the business of making sure that the divisions in the working class are not only replicated, but expanded. Find more divisions within the working class. Create more and different layers within the working class who can be turned against the fellow members of their class on behalf of you. Now, of course, the classic way in which this was done and this manifested in the imperialist countries has been the labor aristocracy, which I talked about on previous shows, and I'll be doing another program on that specifically dedicated to exploring the theory as expressed by Engels and Lenin and why it's the best tool through which we can understand the divisions. But all I'm going to say for now is, of course, that was 
one of the first expressions of how the bourgeoisie can not only create but sustain these divisions by having a section of the working class that is better rewarded and is more linked into bourgeois politics and is more likely to be a repository of reactionary ideas, then you've already got a very, very effective division there, especially because this is the layer that became the key part of, in the British case, the Labour Party and the TUC trade unions. Now, that's, of course, the original division within the working class. And then you can focus on creating others. So again, going back to Marx and Engels, you can create the division between the English worker and the Irish worker, or the British worker and the Irish worker. And we bring that right up to date. You create the division between the British worker or the second generation migrant or third generation migrant British worker and the latest arrival who has come into the country seeking work. That's a very effective way of stirring up division within the working class, as was, of course, all of the rhetoric that accompanied the so-called war on terror, which was in reality a justification for rampant imperialism abroad, combined with new methods of dividing the working class at home, specifically carving out the Muslim or apparently Muslim sections of the working class and telling the rest of the working class that they are a danger and need to be contained or need to be repressed. And of course, that was one part of the, the ideological message that was sent out for over 15 years through the period of the so-called war on terror. And on the other hand, you had the left side of the ideological superstructure proclaiming that all of the working class were racists for sometimes echoing the propaganda that another wing of the working uh, the ruling class had given them, saying that the, uh, the dire threat to them was the Muslims. So this is the, the game that is constantly in play here. Different wings of bourgeois propaganda seek to drum their message into the heads of the petty bourgeoisie and the working class, and then one half of that propaganda system will denounce the other half on a regularly and vigorous basis to give the appearance of great divisions, when in actual fact it is one system that sometimes has a row with itself, but in reality is pursuing very much the same aims. So, to return to the subject of commodified rebellions, how do these serve the ruling class? Now, what the ruling class realized after the Bolshevik Revolution of October 1917 was that revolutionary energy that is unleashed by the contradictions of capitalism, that is, of course, incredibly dangerous to them, and therefore they needed to not only repress revolutionary movements when they arose, but find ways of co-opting the revolutionary energy that does emerge, particularly when it emerges within the petty bourgeoisie. And this is, of course, one of the things that informs fascism. So you remember, fascism, even though it is an ultra-reactionary movement dedicated towards the violent restoration of the power of the bourgeois state and the power of the ruling class, that is not how it sells itself. It sells itself with claims of national revolution, national restoration, purging the corrupt elements from the system, putting in a new order. This is all, of course, pioneered by Benito Mussolini. Now, Mussolini, of course, 
former socialist, former anarchist, former editor of Avanti, the uh, old Italian Socialist Party newspaper. And he understood very well how to posture and gesture and appear to be a revolutionary figure. And of course, his fascist movement responded with alacrity to the needs of the Italian ruling class. Because after World War I, and after the economic collapse that followed it, and the severe difficulties of the Italian bourgeois state, the Italian ruling class needed a reactionary figure to come in and violently crush the insurgent working class. But they couldn't just rely upon a Bonapartist figure out of the military or some kind of Bonapartist rule out of the existing politicians. As I've said before, it had to appear to be new. It had to appear to be a new order that was being brought in to respond to the crisis. And it needed to be able to capture to a certain extent, some of the revolutionary energy that was within the petty bourgeoisie. The petty bourgeoisie, particularly in the uh, the officer class of the Italian army that had come out of World War I, very disillusioned and very angry, and within, of course, some of the small landowners, small shopkeepers, who were much more common in Italy in the early 1920s. All of that frustration needed to be gathered up into something because otherwise there was the risk that it would go towards the communists. And so this is how fascism, at least in part, is designed. It has to do the job of capturing the frustration and the anger of the layers of the petty bourgeoisie who are crushed and are disadvantaged by capitalism. But it needs to capture that energy and take it in a reactionary direction by giving them a pseudo-revolutionary outlet via violence against the communists, against the trade unions, against the organized working class, and ultimately finding them another pseudo-revolutionary outlet, which is violent anti-Semitism in the case of the German Nazis. And it's not for nothing that Engels called anti-Semitism the socialism of fools, because if you examine the Nazi rhetoric around this, you see that this was very much what the Nazi ideologist, Hitler, and of course those who designed the party ideology for him, what they were aiming for, of course, was that they needed to keep the party faithful, the ultra-violent bits of the lumpens and the petty bourgeoisie who had been swept up into the, the stormtrooper movement. They needed to provide them with a radical outlet. And that radical outlet was, of course, the persecution of the Jewish population, the confiscation of their property, the herding of them into ghettos, and ultimately the death camps. And that's a need that the Nazi party had, a need that the German imperialist state had, was to keep the lumpens and the petty bourgeois in the Nazi rank and file moving forward in terms of the, they imagined that they were carrying out some kind of revolutionary activity. But of course, it was twisted and perverted into a reactionary outlet, which was designed to, of course, target the Jewish population and keep these various different layers invested within the system of government that the Nazis had designed. And of course, as I said, provide them with a pseudo-revolutionary outlet for their frustrations. Because of course, for all of Hitler's rhetoric and economic revival talk, Life in Germany, for a lot of the working class, though the Nazis 
stabilize the situation. They stabilized it via relentless attacks on the working class, the destruction of working class political and industrial organizations. And you needed to make sure that the jackboot was kept firmly on the neck of the working class, and you needed to make sure that your shock troopers were kept invested, and you needed to keep them invested via that usage of anti-Semitism. That was certainly one way in which the Nazis were to themselves perfect almost the fascist usage of the fake revolution of a much bigger expression of the socialism of fools. So that is an extreme way that the imperialist ruling class uses a pseudo-revolution to keep the different subordinate layers of the population, or at least some of them, invested in the system. And of course, it is a method which is studied by various different political scientists and think tanks within the different imperialist countries after World War II. Because, of course, they employed a lot of these uh, Nazi guys, party functionaries, intelligence men, military men, scientists, who didn't get the bullet or the hangman's noose after 1945. Because, of course, most of the people who did the actual dirty work didn't get any punishment at all, or very little. They went on to work for the West German state, or they went on to work for American imperialism or British imperialism, or all of the above. So a lot of these methods were studied after World War II. And one of the things that the ruling class realized that they needed to do was to consistently be able to represent themselves or a part of themselves as revolutionary agents themselves. So what do I mean by this? What you see after World War II, particularly in the period where the boom of the post-war period runs out, And the ruling class not only has to carry out assaults on the poorest end of the working class, but even the labor aristocracy itself comes under attack. Well, then you need, again, go back to our imagined diagram here of base and superstructure. The base requires creative destruction. It requires attacks on the working class. It requires, of course, increased imperialism overseas. And therefore, you need a change in the political superstructure. You need the earthworks need to be dug up and recreated to draw from Gramsci's. And you need new methods of ideological control to emerge in order that you can revive the system. Now, for a while, the British ruling class are kind of stuck in that they're trying to revive themselves, but they haven't found a political method to do so. They consider in the early to middle 1970s the viability of a military coup, but decide ultimately it's not worth the risk. They can find other ways of doing this. Now, this is why political phenomena like Thatcherism and Reaganism is such an interesting case study, because, of course, these are movements which are described as conservative. The reformist writer, and thinker Ralph Miliband referred to this form of conservatism as class war conservatism. Bit of a strange way of putting it, really. Now, this draws up the question of what is conservatism? Because, of course, conservative writers, or those who call themselves conservative writers, like Peter Hitchens and others like him, will furiously deny that Thatcher and Reagan were conservative figures. And there's some validity to what they say, because they certainly weren't doing much conserving of the ideological forms that these conservative writers value, such as defense of 
the traditional Christian form of marriage, defense of that against divorce laws, defense against the social changes that the 1960s ushered in. None of that was really on the cards, though of course they used rhetoric against that to gain some votes. What it was really about though was of course protecting capitalist property relations. That's the conservatism right there, which is all that conservatism really is. It's not a defense of traditional morality. It's not a defense of traditional religion. None of that was present in the so-called new right of the 1980s. It was purely about defending capitalist property relations. But the way in which they did it provided the model for much of politics going forward. Because after the end of the boom uh, of the post-war period, you need new ways, as I said, in which to conduct bourgeois rule. And the need of the economic base is for a wholesale attack and destruction of working class power. So what do you need to do? You need to make sure that the working class is divided. You need to play on that old division. So they tried a frontal assault in Britain, that is. They tried a frontal assault on the working class as a whole in the early 1970s, and it didn't work. It provoked an enormous rebellion. It provoked a general strike from below movement that the TUC leaders were obliged to go along with over the Pentonville Dockers. So the ruling class had to reconsider. And what they did was they, of course, first employed the services of Harold Wilson and Jim Callaghan's Labour Party to, first of all, drive wedges into the working class. And it, what, what helped them do that was, of course, the fact that the so-called Communist Party at the time was really resident within the labor aristocracy and the trade union bureaucracy and have become increasingly adrift from the masses. And this, of course, helped the ruling class enormously because there was no party out there that was able to fight back against these attempts by the Labour Party to drive wedges into the working class. And one of the ways they did this very effectively was breaking up national bargaining, making sure that the divisions, for instance, in the miners' union were played upon, putting in different productivity deals for different sections of workforces, making sure that even in factories, even in single factory units, divisions between different sections of the workforce were played upon and pushed forward. And the union leaders, of course, actively assisted with this because they didn't want this unified working-class militancy that had emerged in the early 1970s to go any further either. So, this is, of course, the valuable service that the Labour Party provided to the British ruling class. And then we get into the 1980s, and then once they've, uh, once they've stymied the unified working class rebellion, you can then move to creating new forms of ideological control. So one of those is Thatcherism, which is able to pick up support from at least a section of the Labour aristocracy, which has often gone back and forth between Labour and the Conservative parties, going all the way back to the reforms of Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone in the 1860s and 1870s. Remember, Benjamin Disraeli is credited as a great reformer and certainly is a very clever bourgeois politician in that he not only extended the right to vote to certain sections of the working class, the upper income layers, but he sponsored the building of working men's clubs and other facilities for this layer of the working class in order to, of course, make sure that when they did get the vote, that they would vote for the 
Tory party or the Conservative and Unionist party as it came to be known. And this resulted in anything like um, between a quarter and a third of the working class electorate, even after the entire working class had been given the vote after 1929, consistently voting Conservative all the way through to the present day. And this was something that they've the new right, so-called, were able to draw upon in terms of gaining support for the assault on certain layers of the working class in the 1980s. Remember, what they needed to do was to make sure that not only was the working class divided so its most militant institutions could be broken up and smashed, but you needed support from at least a minority of the working class in order to get that done. Not only did you need that, but you needed to dress this up as a rebellion. And this is one of the things you find in all of Thatcher's speeches, and not just hers, but all the speeches of like the cleverer members of her administration. And it's embodied within things like the Ridley Plan, which was specifically predicated on the idea that you needed to keep the working class divided in order to effectively destroy its most militant layers. And you needed to bring at least a section of the working class over to your side. And you do this by doing things like proclaiming yourselves to be the rebels against the social democratic consensus, which is now, thanks to the machinations of the trade union barons, the union militants, and all manner of other enemies, uh, this is a consensus which is now holding back the uh, ambitious working class man who wants to make something of himself, who doesn't want to be constrained by the by the militants and by the trade union leaders anymore. Therefore, he's going to lend support to Thatcher and her crusade against bureaucracy, against union militancy that's holding back and holding down the energy of British business. You know the kind of rhetoric that these people engage in. But of course, they marketed this, and it was very cleverly marketed, as a form of rebellion. Because what the ruling class have realized since the Bolshevik Revolution is that you can't really, most of the time, go around as the ruling class, proclaiming that you need to defend the status quo. Everything's got to be portrayed as a rebellion against something. And that was even true, as I said just a moment ago, it's even true of fascism itself. It has to be a rebellion. It has to be something which can be seen as reviving the system, something which can be seen as a break with the status quo. And that is, of course, reflective of the fact that there is, even amongst layers of the petty bourgeoisie, even amongst backward layers of the lumpen, a profound revulsion with the status quo, even if that's misdirected. And so the capitalists constantly need to find political vehicles to harness that and to be able to drive it forward. And in the service of, of course, their need to attack the working class, rebuild consensus for bourgeois rule, find new ways in which bourgeois ideology can divide and subdivide the working class, and of course justify aggressive acts of imperialism overseas. So Thatcher the revolutionary was the great con of the 1980s. And of course, this is reflected in Blair, the new revolutionary of the 1990s. He is someone who was explicitly portrayed as a revolutionary figure, and he portrayed himself thus in a lot of his speeches, including a very early famous one, which he gave as Prime Minister just after he'd won the 1997 general election. 
he gave a speech in which he denounced the so-called forces of conservatism that were holding Britain back. Now, this was, of course, portrayed by his useful idiots in the Labour Party as an attack on the Tories. Of course, it wasn't. It was an attack on the working class. It was an attack on the working class resisting his further efforts of marketization and privatization of public services, for instance. That was what he was talking about. But, of course, it's portrayed as he's the great modernizer. He's the great um, man who's going to stride forward and cut down the opponents of growth and prosperity. And, of course, he played upon the same divisions that Thatcher played upon. He drew back in to support of the Labour Party the sections of the Labour aristocracy that had wandered off to the Tories in the 80s and the early 90s and drew in a section of the petty bourgeoisie as well, all with talk of national revival, new Labour, new Britain, all that kind of guff. But of course, this runs out of steam quite quickly because the reality bites within a decade. And the reality is that the ultra-financialized British economy, the oldest continually existing capitalist economy, of course, it's not the oldest in terms of being the first. The first was the Venetian Republic, but certainly the oldest that is still in existence today. And as Lenin pointed out many years ago, over a century ago now, in his work on imperialism, the trajectory of all the imperialist countries is towards deindustrialization and rule by financial oligarchy. And that became stark and apparent in the crisis of 2008. Now, Blair bailed out just before then, just in time, to make sure that the entire thing got pinned on Gordon Brown. Justifiably so in many respects, but Blair managed to get away. And of course, this crisis necessitates another repositioning of the bourgeoisie in terms of how they market themselves, how they play upon the divisions in the working class. And they, of course, go back to various different forms of revolt, and they can't any longer do the uh, bold, swaggering, individualistic Thatcherite thing. And that's kind of gone out of the window, though various politicians do keep trying to revive it. They needed to essentially find ways to shore up the system. Now, they've managed to save the system from total collapse, of course, by injecting gigantic amounts of liquidity into it, and that's what they've been continually doing ever since. So they needed to change the way in which their rule was justified. They needed new forms of bourgeois ideology to ultimately shore up the system, stabilize it, and then ultimately justify things like continued aggressive acts of imperialism and ultimately continued aggressive actions against the domestic working class. Now, that need that they have, stemming from the base, as always, and reflecting up into the superstructure, creates many different things. It creates many different forms of ideological expression. Now, here I want to go back to a comment that Lenin made in 1913 about the dominance of Malthusianism and uh, the wild pessimism of the petty bourgeoisie. Lenin, talking immediately before World War I, was talking about this and talking about why Malthusianism and why prophets of doom walk amongst the petty bourgeois layers and why councils of despair are so popular with them. And he makes the comment, drawing, of course, from the observation of Marx, that the petty bourgeoisie is a doomed class. Therefore, it is marked by a tendency towards acts of despair. And this is something which has been actively promoted since the crash of 2008. Of course, capitalism now struggles in comparison to the Thatcher and Blair eras in Britain, 
where you had this optimistic vision that they were selling to the petty bourgeoisie and to certain layers of the working class that they, they were on the road towards permanent growth, that they'd done away with boom and bust. And this was a similar thing you could apply to the Reagan, Bush, Senior, and Clinton era in the United States, that they were on the road to ever greater prosperity. Now, after 2008, you can't argue that anymore. Not really. So you need, again, new forms of ideology to try and stabilize the system. And Malthusian despair and prophets of doom become very popular after this. Again, generated by the fact that there is this gigantic problem at the base of the imperialist countries, which is that the rule by, again, let's use Lenin's phrase, the financial oligarchy, the financialization of everything, the hollowing out of the manufacturing base, the destruction of meaningful work for large amounts of the population has led to a situation where you get more and more despair within all sections of the working class, the poorer end in particular, but also amongst the petty bourgeoisie. And it's vital for capital that the petty bourgeoisie is kept invested in the system somehow. And if you can't have them invested in the system, you can at least have them chasing their tails. So Malthusian doom is a manifestation of the acute contradictions of late-stage capitalism, as we're going to term this, and of course the crisis of that this particular form of capitalism, and of course the pressure that that exerts upon the petty bourgeoisie. The petty bourgeoisie, always sandwiched between the bourgeois and the proletariat, hating and fearing the proletariat, and fearing most of all being sucked down into it, and looking enviously and with bitterness at the bourgeoisie themselves, which they are close enough to in order to know how they're living, but far enough away from to know that they will never reach. And in periods where capitalism is barely growing, such as the last 10 years, where there is no hopeful horizon anymore, the petty bourgeoisie being gripped by erosion of their status and continued fear of being sucked down into poverty and deprivation, of course, their thinkers reflect that in turning to ever more wild forms of despair. And if you look across the book titles that have been released over the last few years, over the last, so we say, 10 to 15 years, just look at the amount of world-ending, doom-mongering books that have been released. Now, has the science changed on things like climate change? Because that's, of course, the most prominent example. That's what the bourgeois themselves have invested a lot of money in promoting. Is it because the science has changed? Well, you don't need to go too far in terms of finding science that is critical of the established narrative here to realize that a lot of this is just marketing and junk. What's being done is, of course, like many things, presentation of or selection of various different facts in popular science programs in popular science journals and presenting them in a new way to claim that doom is just around the corner i mean according to some of the predictions we should all be dead already uh, the place i'm sitting right now should be under five feet of water but the predictions being wrong and continually wrong doesn't matter as long as you can keep enough of the petty bourgeois and the labor aristocracy entertained by this story of doom 
which, as I said right at the top of the program, is serving a double function. Most important function is, is that it's creating an ideological justification for a very real need that the capitalist system has to go on a gigantic assault against working class living standards. And it needs a very powerful ideological justification to do that. It also needs a form of ideology or various forms of ideology which can justify this assault in terms of it's this or the end of the world, which is, of course, a common refrain of the bourgeois since at least the 2000s. At least this was the rhetoric of the war on terror period. Well, you may not like us, but it's either us or world-ending apocalypse via the medium of Islamic fundamentalism. It's either continued dilution and diminishing of living standards or a tidal wave takes most of the country away. The rising sea levels destroy us, etc., etc. It's the same argument, but just with different threats posed all designed towards two things. Of course, in the case of the war on terror ideology, it was designed towards justifying the ever-growing expansion of a security state, which has been growing, by the way, for over 40 years now, and in the case of the climate change narrative around continually diminishing working-class living standards. And all presented, in terms of the, uh, the latter, the environmentalist message, all presented as a rebellion a rebellion that the bourgeoisie is apparently carrying out against itself. And this is perhaps the most developed form of a commodified rebellion. Again, as I said previously, one that you can quite literally purchase your way into. So, let's go back to the imaginary diagram again. The economic base produces a problem. It produces a crisis. And that requires new ways of justifying bourgeois rule and ways of justifying an attack upon the working class in particular, and of course selling new ways of rule to the upper end of the working class and the petty bourgeoisie. So rebel by joining a climate movement, rebel by watching the latest David Attenborough documentary where he lies about the number of polar bears in existence or something, rebel by listening to Greta Thunberg's latest corporate-sponsored talk, rebel by buying an electric car, and this reflects back into the base again. This is a commodified rebellion because, of course, what you're being pushed towards is new consumer choices, which, of course, can be part of your great and heroic act of saving the world by borrowing a gigantic amount of money to buy a Tesla or installing a ridiculously inefficient heat pump or having solar panels put on your roof. Not only are you buying yourself some virtue, you're participating in a rebellion against the bad guys, the fossil fuel industry, etc., who are, of course, making enormous profits from the production of a lot of the materials used in the construction of these so-called green energy scams that are being run. So these are particularly modern forms of commodified rebellions. And again, though, the, the big problem that they're having is that these aren't, at the moment, fueled by an image of a better future. Now, they're trying to wrap these up in the idea of, well, we're going to have a better future if we just go full on towards green technology. This is what Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, sorry, Sir Keir Starmer, he's earned that knighthood, is doing in a lot of his rhetoric. And it's why I pay attention to him, not because he's a particularly interesting figure, but because he's clearly speaking for a part of the ruling class that has identified the need for 
a positive message of sorts to be able to give to the petty bourgeois and the upper end of the working class. And that is the function which Starmer is serving now. They realise the British ruling class have, or most of them have, that the Tories are fucked and that they need to be gotten out of the way. And therefore, we need a new guy to come in and do some of the magic that Blair managed to carry out. Bear in mind, though, Blair's so-called magic lasted about four years in reality. The economic picture started to get more and more turbulent after 2001. The growth of the 97 to 2007 period was never of the same level as the post-war period. And they had to resort to very aggressive acts of imperialism just to keep things going, as they did, by the way, again, after 2007, 2008, which is where, of course, <clears throat> we get the aggressive imperialist wars in Libya and Syria and other places as well. So all of this is the background to which the whole environmentalist rebellion is called into existence. It is a requirement by the bourgeoisie who are now trying to turn it into a more positive vision because they realize that just giving out a relentlessly negative message is not something that is going to be able to do the trick for them in the long term. They need a positive buy-in, and that's what they're trying to find with Starmer. They're in a bit of a fix, though, because they're faced with a, an increasing inability to be able to carry out these aggressive acts of imperialism to bring in the super profits they require to be able to make sure that they can do some elements of payoffs for the petty bourgeoisie and labor aristocracy because a lot of these countries now that would have been easier targets 10 years ago or 20 years ago are now building themselves alliances and of course are no longer tolerating the rule of outright compradors. So even in a place like Tunisia, which is ruled by a sort of pseudo-Bonapartist dictatorial figure in the form of Qais Saeed, for instance, he is now talking about joining the BRICS organization. And this is something which, of course, the Western imperialists very much do not want, because suddenly these countries, which they're used to having completely under their boot heel, are finding that they have other options in terms of where to lend money from. And somewhat better deals are on the table from China, from the BRICS Development Bank, and he's creating increasing contradictions. So the imperialists are finding that their ability to offer concessions is being ever more restricted. And we as communists should welcome that because the more that they are unable to offer any kind of concession, the more they are forced into a head-on confrontation with the working class, the more that they are forced to adopt measures which attack the working class as a whole, which they have not done in reality since the early 1970s. They've attacked the bulk of the working class, but they have managed to keep the upper layers invested in the system. If they lose the ability to keep the upper layers invested in the system, then that's a real problem for them. And again, that is a development that we should very much welcome. But to turn to other areas of commodified rebellions. Now, as I said, the need for commodified rebellions is very much present within capitalism. And it is very much something which the ideologists and strategists of capital are constantly engaged in. The need to take the rebellious energy of certain layers of the population and have it invested in completely useless endeavours or endeavours that only serve to recreate bourgeois ideology. 
So well, we've already talked about the environmentalist movement, the so-called climate change movement, being heavily sponsored by the bourgeois. But what other things are heavily sponsored by the bourgeois? Well, one of those key planks, shall we say, of bourgeois ideology, one of the key justifications of bourgeois ideology, really since the 1960s, has been the idea of personal freedom, the personal freedom without any kind of responsibility. And this is something which is promoted by certain factions of the bourgeoisie. It's not something which is universally accepted, but it is something which, unfortunately, those who call themselves communists, and I'm using heavy inverted commas there, have become attracted towards because it is a certain form of commodified rebellion which the ruling class has been happy to see promoted. Remember what I said earlier about how the differing wings of the capitalist class and their different ideological expressions routinely get themselves involved in bitter disputes and controversies that appear to be very divisive, but in actual fact are rows between two people with the same objectives, just different methods of getting there. One section of the ruling class has been happy to promote since the 1960s a sort of diluted version of 60s radicalism, which has come to be associated with the promotion of hedonism and the promotion of so-called sexual liberation. Now, this is something which is, of course, particularly sold to teenagers and people in their 20s, but you increasingly find that people as old as their 40s and 50s are falling for this scam. Now, what do I mean by this? First of all, let's go back to the post-World War II period. Let's go back and look at the emergence of the teenager not just as an age group, but as a, what I'm going to call a marketing and ideological phenomenon. Now, the idea of the teenager as a group to which you could market products is something which is very much an invention of the middle period of the 20th century, particularly because after World War II in Britain, the United States, and Western Europe, you have for the first time emerging a group that will stay in education at least until the age of 14 or 15 or 16, depending upon which kind of schooling they're engaged in in that particular time period, but which is, of course, staying out of the workplace for much longer than their parents or grandparents did and is coming of age at a moment in which their families, even the lower-end working-class families are find that they have more or slightly more disposable income. And so you have this group who are in education, who are getting more educated, more knowledgeable than their parents or grandparents in certain areas. And they are coming of age and have more leisure time and have families which have more disposable income. That's a huge market. That's a huge market for specific sorts of products. And this is where, of course, we get the invention of much of what we now know as mass culture. Mass culture under capitalism is, of course, something which is generated out of the capitalist system. It reflects all the contradictions of the capitalist system. And, of course, it's where you get products that can be sold as cultural rebellions, which, is, of course, is another safe area of rebellion for capitalism. So, Let's go all the way back to the 1950s. The very movement of what is referred to now as rock and roll, which is, of course, derived from blues and 
comes to be popularized by performers such as originally Bill Haley, then Elvis Presley and others, is portrayed as, and you can find a million books on this subject, a form of rebellion. It's a youth rebellion. It's a youthful rebellion against those fusty old guys. Well, you know, the fusty old guys owned the record companies, which sold you the products. So this was always fake. Now, I'm not going to go down the route of saying that all of this music should be outlawed and nobody should listen to it. That's perhaps going a bit too far. What I am saying is that you have to realize the reason why this is all portrayed as rebellion. Because, you know, what the hell were they rebelling against when they're a product? All of these musicians are products. In the case of the Beatles, they were designed by a man who owned a record shop, Brian Epstein. They were their image was designed to the nth degree. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen to it or enjoy it or any or that or any of the other musical or cultural products that comes from this post-war period. But the idea that this represented a rebellion when it is completely built into the capitalist system and sold as commodities to you and sold by musicians and other cultural figures who are designed by the marketing men of this system. This is all ridiculous, this idea that it's a rebellion. I mean, it's what makes Tariq Ali's book on the 1960s even more ridiculous on a second read of it recently. And, you know, the whole street fighting man thing, you know, the idea that people like Mick Jagger are leading some form of rebellion when, you know, he was a millionaire very early on. But this is how the 1960s and 70s are part of this system of commodified rebellion because what they boil the 19, particularly the 1960s and 1970s down to is cultural rebellion. Cultural rebellion against the old and the fusty and those who just don't get it. And this is, of course, came to partially at least inform Thatcherism and Reaganism, the idea that they were rebelling against an abstract establishment figure. And as I've written about before in pieces on the website, the figure in cultural terms of the old country club guy who just doesn't get the new frosting individualist businessman that was a key facet of culture in the 1980s it's what the very funny movie caddyshack's all about after all the triumph of the lewd crude and rude businessman rodney dangerfield over the uh, the fusty old guys who run the golf club it's a ridiculous example but it's a very common trope in like 1970s and 1980s mainstream culture and it derives from, of course, the need to present what is actually a reactionary thing, the, of course, preservation and the extension of existing property relations. But it needs to find figures that are perhaps representatives of older forms of bourgeois rule to rebel against when the bourgeoisie no longer finds the rule of that particular expression of them particularly useful. So commodified rebellions are really perfected by the culture industries of Britain and the United States in the 1970s with things like the punk movie, which is an absolute classic example of something which was designed from top to bottom by various different marketing men and women, designed to look like this great rebellious thing, which was, was in actual fact a movement of corporate-sponsored nihilism at best all controlled by some of the most powerful entertainment corporations in the world, and which, again, presents this great fake fight between the traditionalists and the, 
the young punks who just don't give a fuck and many of whom voted for Thatcher. This is a classic example of how you take energy that could be put to better usage, could be put to revolutionary usage, and you completely pervert it into nihilism and consumerism. And that's what the culture industries of Britain and the United States absolutely specialize in, purchasing rebellion. It's something which, of course, we all grow up with. Those of us born since really the 70s have particularly grown up with. And one of the things that I grew up with was this feeling that we'd missed all the good rebellions and therefore we'd we'd better go out and we'd better buy all the records of a previous era. We'd better find a better expression of rebellion than that was currently on offer. And that's a thing that is specifically encouraged as well. What else is specifically encouraged through this period from the 60s up to the present day is, of course, the idea of sex as a marketing commodity, as a marketing tool. That was something that, of course, the ad men and the marketing men picked up on very, very quickly. So go back to what I said earlier, the idea of liberation being a life without constraints. So a form of nihilism, a form of self-destruction. This is bourgeois ideology selling the idea of their rule being justified because you can live a life without limits. And in trying to live a life without limits, you can, of course, have all kinds of fake fights that don't concern capital at all with various representatives of previous forms of bourgeois rule. This is why you get the left, and here we'll get to them, investing so heavily in things like pro prostitution movements, which is what they've been doing for a long time now. They call it sex work. This is just, of course, a pleasant or a more pleasant sounding euphemism for prostitution, which carries with it rightly a degree of stigma. And the marketing job that capital has done on prostitution, turning it into sex work and then getting the organized left to act as their advertising agency for it, is a triumph of reactionary politics and marketing. You can then also see how Things like identity politics of various different strands acts as forms of commodified rebellion because what the ruling class have done with various forms of identity politics is to use them to stratify and divide the working class into a hundred different layers and then start trying to award group rights to various different layers within that and have those layers managed by self-appointed representatives of that so-called community Remember, every time that something goes wrong, the prime minister or the president or the governor will meet with various different people who are described as representatives of the black community, all, of course, designed to ensure that class unity is never reached. And so this is some reason why they are so keen on furthering this form of identity politics or used to be referred to as political correctness because now, of course, has institutional support all the way across capitalist governments. They spend an awful lot of money on it and continue to do so because it is so useful. And the trade union leaders play straight along with this as well because they're incorporated into all these so-called equality structures that exist all the way across the public sector and indeed some of the private sector. And this is a great way of securing safe rebellion zones, safe areas in which People who have got a bit of energy about them and might be drawn towards revolution in other circumstances can now find themselves a well-remunerated career acting as fake rebels inside a safe zone created for them by capital. They can have endless crusades against figures like Cecil Rhodes. This is what a lot of these academics are doing now because, of course, the form of imperialism represented by Cecil Rhodes has, for the moment, gone and therefore 
he's a safe figure to tear down. Don't need him anymore. This is why, you know, bourgeois figures on the right get very upset by these sorts of things, because they're the ones who have been left behind as capital has moved on to find new and more dynamic ways of ruling. So figures from the bourgeois past can be torn down. And the bourgeois are quite happy to see them torn down because they can join the rebellion as well. It's the reason why Black Lives Matter in the United States became a movement that was supported so vociferously by many members of the bourgeoisie was because it was something which was actively destroying any chances of class unity against the system because they were able to promote via the myriad of academics they have at their disposal who will tell you that all the divisions within the working class are not only justified but correct and that this movement should go in this direction and by the way vote for Joe Biden. This was a great triumph of bourgeois marketing and a great triumph of a commodified rebellion and of course the relentless rise of the internet has provided all kinds of opportunities to get people involved in commodified rebellions from their very own bedrooms particularly again targeted towards younger people and this is something that perhaps I missed as I grew up in a more analog period we did have the internet of course but it wasn't on your phone it was on desktop computers and it's particularly those who have been born since the 2000s who are caught up in this because of course you can basically encourage all kinds of younger people to have a rebellion from their own bedroom they never need leave the confines of the four walls they live in they can rebel from their phone. They can rebel through social media networks. They can rebel by building an entire online identity for themselves. Of course, paying a hefty subscription fee to various services. And of course, you can then rebel by taking that alternate online identity you've created for yourself and taking it into the real world via declaring yourself to be part of the transgender movement, declaring yourself to be without gender or with one of the various different gender options that the menu on the late and unlamented metaverse was offering for you all 96 of them or whatever number it was all of this of course is a magnificent opportunity for capital to not only make money but to take younger people and get them invested heavily in the fake rebellions that are available online be it green movements gender ideology whatever it is all forms of marketing all promoting forms of liberation through endless promotion of a porn-soaked degenerate culture and calling that liberation. This is all great stuff for capital and it proves that they have really mastered this tactic of providing so many outlets for fake rebellions that people can go down. People of all ages can go down and this is the fact that we must face that much of the organizations which were supposed to secure working class liberation, or at least alleviate the conditions for the working class, have become, of course, wholly part of the system of capitalist control. This is very true of the trade union, but it's true of the so-called organic movements that grow up on the left, which are wholly part of the bourgeois ideological superstructure. Again, bourgeoisie continually renews its ideological superstructure, which is why the British left looks so ridiculous when it starts going on about the bourgeoisie as if they are still using the same methods of rule as they did in the 1930s. They've changed their methods of rule many, many times, all designed, of course, to defend the same class interests. But the way in which the bourgeoisie conduct themselves, of course, is continually refreshed and renewed. And the 
The commodified rebellions are very much part of this, as I hope I've demonstrated over the course of this program. So I'll bring my remarks to a close there. Again, questions always welcome. You can either submit them through the website or uh, to the email address. I'll be doing a somewhat of a follow-up program on this, talking in more depth about the labor aristocracy theory and why that is the best way to understand many of the divisions in the working class in the imperialist countries. And that'll be out next week. But until then, I will leave you with a happily non-commodified piece of music. Pentru traiul luminos, pentru traiul luminos mai